And we thankfully have the assurance that he will do that. He has loved us and he will love us still, ever and always. The beginning of that song, first stanza, says, Savior, like a shepherd lead us, much we need thy tender care. In thy pleasant pastures feed us, for our use thy folds prepare. And the way that God feeds us, the way that he prepares us, is through his word that he has given to us. And we're going to um, excitedly, I hope, turn to God's word now. Let's take our Bibles out. And I will ask you to turn this morning to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. We are continuing our journey through this wonderful uh, book of Romans. As Paul instructs us in so many ways, so many things. We're in this second half of the letter that he wrote where he's focusing uh, very much on the practical implications of what he taught us in the first 11 chapters. But in chapter 14, we're continuing uh, this morning as we move through this book. And we're going to read the whole chapter this morning. Uh, We looked last week at the first half of the chapter. We'll be looking at the second half this morning. But let's read the whole chapter. Romans chapter 14, this is the word of the living God to us. Let us give heed as it is read. It says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. 
It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have uh, given us your word that you might teach us, that you might equip us, that you might prepare us as your people, that you might show us how we are to live as your children. And we pray, Father, this morning that as uh, your word is now preached, that you would bless the one who preaches. Bless that empty vessel, Lord, and fill him with your spirit that he may truly give your words to your people this morning. We pray that your people would be given uh, receptive hearts, eager to hear, eager to obey, and we pray that your spirit would work in us that we may obey. That is our desire, and we pray that through it you would build up your church. Through the name of the King of the church we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, as I mentioned, this morning we're going to be returning to Paul's somewhat extended treatment here in chapters 14 and 15, um, his treatment of the topic of unity in the church. One of the most important practical aspects of church life, this issue of unity, practical and theological you know, there's a, there, is, there is an overarching and objective factual unity that we possess. That, that in that way we don't have to, to pursue it because it is a fact. Every true believer in every congregation and every member of every two, true church of Christ throughout the ages are in fact united together in Christ. Everyone, is, every believer is part of the one church of Christ. Chosen by God, redeemed by Christ, all indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. As Paul speaks of elsewhere, one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. One body of which we are all a part. In our creed, we recite that we believe one holy, universal, apostolic church. It is an undeniable truth, and nothing that we say, nothing that we believe, nothing that we do can change that objective fact that we are united in one church, the church of Christ. But the thing that seems to trip us up where our, our fallen sinful natures come in and, and mess things up, is in living that unity out. Living it out in the context of other fallen sinful people. With, with us in the church, it doesn't take much for that unity to be disrupted, the expression of that unity to be disrupted. The way we act toward one another very easily is used by the enemy of the church to cause division in the church. Whether it's gossiping or lack of forgiveness in the church or impatience or self-centeredness, all of those militate against enjoying the unity that we have. 
and enjoying the fellowship, enjoying the support, enjoying the blessings that we are intended to have as members of Christ, as members of one another. One of the other things that that disrupts unity in the church is judgmentalism, quarreling over the silliest things. If you've been in the church for any amount of time, you've seen that happen. You may have even been involved in that happening, quarreling over opinions, quarreling over non-essential things. And as you know, if you were with us last week, that is Paul's topic here. In, in Romans 14 and part of Romans 15, and we started to look at it last week, Paul is very concerned about this, as we should be. Very concerned that we do not disrupt the unity of the church over non-essential things, non-essential beliefs, non-essential practices that some in the church, in regard to those non-essential practices, some in the church may continue to, to hold to, even though doing so expresses a certain amount of immaturity in understanding. We looked at this last week and began to, to delve into it. If you recall from last week, Paul is in this chapter and on into chapter 15, is sort of divided the church into two groups, not as a, a division that he's arguing against, but in order to speak to this. He speaks of two groups. There are those that he speaks of that he refers to as weak in faith, or just weak, and those that he refers to, and will refer to explicitly in chapter 15, verse 1, as the strong, strong in faith. And as we pick back up today, from what we looked at last week. Let's be sure that we understand what he's saying there. Remind ourselves of what, what those mean. Because those terms have no reflection on the salvation of those two groups. Both are Christians. Both are brothers and sisters in the Lord. Both are valued members of the congregation in the church. The weak, the weak in faith, are those in the church who have not yet grasped or embraced the the fullness of the freedom that Christ has given to them, especially as it regards certain ritual observances in the Old Testament, certain aspects of the, the Old Testament ceremonial law. And as a result, they believe that they are still bound to those observances of some of those things. The things that Paul specifically points to are things in regard to a diet, not eating certain foods, and the observance of certain holy days. Those are the things that he's mentioned. The weak have, according to Paul, we might say overly sensitive consciences and strong scruples in regard to these things. And as we saw last week, other things can be included in this. But those are the weak. The strong, on the other hand, are those who have a more mature understanding of the implications of the finished work of Christ in regard to those things, regarding those Old Testament ceremonial laws, in regard to those practices and other things that the Bible neither condemns nor commands, those indifferent things, the things that we refer to as adiaphora, indifferent things. Paul calls them opinions in verse 1 of chapter 14. 
The strong believe, rightly so, Paul recognizes and tells us here, recognize and and know that no food is unclean in and of itself, that all days from the Old Testament calendar are alike. But he lays out these two groups, groups, but what was going on and you can watch or listen to last week's sermon if you missed it in case, to get all of the details of this. What was going on was that these two groups were judging each other. They were despising each other. They were dividing over these things. The one who eats everything may look down at the one who doesn't and dismiss him and, and mock him as immature might scorn him as hung up on these old requirements and despise him for that. The the weak, on the other hand, may look at those who are able to eat, who don't make a distinction in days. They may look at those as indulging in, in license, in disregarding these things, and they see themselves perhaps as the righteous remnant, you know, the, the truly devoted to God and to his word. And Paul says in this chapter, and this is in fact the main point of this whole section, that these things should not be. That we should not be divided over indifferent things. The strong should welcome the weak. Welcome them among them. Not to quarrel with them, but to build them up. And the weak likewise must welcome and refuse to pass judgment on those who are stronger. Paul says, recognize that each group does what they do or don't do what they don't do in honor of the Lord. We saw that in the first half of the chapter. Recognizing that they've been bought with a price and that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Master and that they stand or fall according to the judgment of the Lord, not according to the judgment of the other group. And Paul concludes... The first half of this in chapter 12 when he says that each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul then continues here in the second half of this chapter by giving the church, and that's us, four commands in in regard to this, at least four commands, in regard to this lesson in unity that he is giving us through these words. And in these verses, Paul is speaking almost exclusively to the ones that he has called the strong. Those who, because of their fuller understanding of the work of Christ, are without the, the, the tender consciences in regard to dietary laws or holy days or other indifferent things. But he begins this second half with a statement that seems to address both groups. And the first command that he gives here is, Don't stumble your brother. Because of the fact that we live or die to the Lord, and because we will each give an account of ourselves to God, that is for how we treat others in regard to these things, because that is true, Paul says here in verse 13, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. He says don't be condemning each other over these things. And he says, notice, Don't do it any longer. Apparently this was going on in the church at Rome. And we know that it goes on in the church today. And Paul is saying there, if you have done so, stop. Stop it. I think we should stop here.
and confess our own sin in regard to these things. We are all guilty of this at one time or another. Of passing judgment, of looking down on others, on, so- on someone because they don't agree with our position on things that are indifferent, on on drinking alcohol or smoking or watching movies or celebrating a Passover feast as Christians, singing psalms or singing psalms and hymns with music, without music. We could go on with the list. Paul says if you're judging each other about these things, dividing with others over these types of indifferent things, Paul says, stop it. And he tells us this morning, stop it. Remember, we're talking about indifferent things. We have to make that clear so that we don't kind of go off the rails in what we we think later about this. We're not talking about the essential things. We're not talking about the nature of God or the content and the meaning of the gospel or the moral law of God or anything for which we have explicit or implicit positive commands in Scripture. Those things are non-negotiable. We talked about them last week. But over these indifferent things, like the list I just gave and others, Paul says, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. So then he moves on, and here now he begins to address specifically the strong group. And he moves on to to another uh, aspect of this command. He says, do not pass judgment, but rather decide something. He commands them to make a determination that they are going to act in a certain way. He says, decide, make a decision in your mind, in your attitude, and in your actions. And what is it? He says, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So stop passing judgment and decide not to stumble Someone else, not to do anything. We talked before about this idea that the Bible always tells us to replace an improper action with a proper one. We see it here. Don't pass judgment, get rid of that, and add in a determination never to stumble someone or do something by which someone may be stumbled. We'll talk more about this under our third heading when we get there this morning, but he says it here just so clearly. He says, really, you strong people, you, for the sake of the unity of the church, for the good of your weaker brothers and sisters, you need to decide that you are not going to do anything that will act as a stumbling block to them in their walk. And that's tough. This is a hard saying. This is really where... Rubber meets road in regard to Paul's commands to consider one another as more important than yourself. This is a a real test as to whether you are willing to do, as Paul said in Romans 12.10, to outdo one another in showing honor. This is how you love one another with brotherly affection. Remember, this is all carrying on from the beginning of chapter 12, where he told us to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices, that we are to to love one another. Here is how you act like Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve. 
by being willing to, to curtail your own freedoms for the good of your weaker brother, even if you're right. And here's why. Look at verse 14. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. So Paul says, I know and I'm persuaded. So Paul here is putting himself into that strong group. And he'll do it again in chapter 15, verse 1. He is clear. He knows this. He says, I know that nothing is unclean in itself. And he's right. Well, of course he's right. That's Paul. I'm sure he appreciates me letting him know that he's right. But the work of Christ has done away with that distinction between clean foods and unclean foods which is his focus here. Remember, Jesus himself said that nothing that goes into a man defiles him. But it's what comes out of him. It is what comes out of his darkened heart and through his perverse lips. Those are the things that defile him, not what goes in. Paul told Timothy that nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So Paul says, I know that there is no real problem with any particular type of food. But, he says, look there, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Now what is Paul saying? Is he saying that the biblical morality is a subjective one? That you have your truth, I have my truth. You have your view of the scripture, I have my view of the scripture in regard to the, uh, the things that the Bible teaches. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, he says, yes, everything is clean. Nothing is ceremonially undefiling. In fact, the word that he uses there, that we translate unclean, harkens back to the, the ceremonial law. Uh, it's translated unclean or profane or common. But Paul says that there are people in the church who have not yet fully grasped that truth that all things are clean, that anything can be eaten. They've not yet fully realized, not yet fully internalized the extent in relation to those Old Testament ceremonial laws of the freeing and fulfilling work of Christ. And there are people who may still think that some of those foods are are unclean. Referencing back to Leviticus 11 and those dietary laws. Or, as we learned last week, there may be some that were concerned in the church that in the context of the Roman Empire, as Paul writes to the church in Rome, that that Old Testament kosher laws weren't being observed. And so some people had just sworn off meat altogether. The Bible, remember, in the Old Testament doesn't ever teach vegetarianism. But it does say that there are some foods that are clean and some that are unclean in that time. But Christ has removed all of that. In fact, the, the Gospels tell us that by Jesus speaking in the way he did, that he, he made all foods clean. But there are some in the church who, who may not understand that. There were some also in that time, in that area perhaps, that were concerned that the meat that they had, that they had purchased in the market, may first have been sacrificed to pagan idols. Paul deals with that in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. 
And so likewise, wouldn't in their minds, they, they, wouldn't, they, they couldn't eat that kind of that meat. And so they would just swore off meat altogether. For these people, for those who think, therefore, it is unclean and it would be a violation of their devotion to God, for them, Paul says, it is unclean because they view it as unclean. For them to eat meat would be for them to compromise their understanding and violate their conscience toward God. And therefore, for them, it was sinful. And now here is the the result of that in regard to dealing with, with one another in love. And this really connects, this next verse, verse 15, really connects back with verse 13. He says in verse 15, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. And that's the point, isn't it? He says, if your brother is distressed by what you do, if he is made sorrowful in in heart by what you do, though it may be fine for you, you are no longer walking in love if you insist on it. If you, without any concern for a more tender conscience, a weaker conscience, if you just sort of flaunt your freedom without any care except for your freedom, your liberty, even though that liberty may be correct, may be right, if by it your brother is grieved, then you have violated the the great commandment that we love one another. You have violated what Paul's been talking about since the beginning of chapter 12. The importance, remember, of walking in love has been the major emphasis in this second half of Romans so far. And so then Paul gives another command, the first two being in verse 13. These aren't, this, we're not to the second point yet, but these are all included in this. In verse, the second half of verse 15, look what he says. He says, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do not destroy. That's a, that's a strong word. Strong in English, strong in the original. This, destroy, this is what the thief does in John 10.10. 10. In contrast to Christ who came to give life, the thief comes in only to steal and to destroy. Paul seems to be contemplating a pretty serious situation here where a weak brother is so troubled, so tempted by the strong one's encouragement to do what the strong one is fine with but what the weak one views as sin that the weak becomes so troubled about this that he just sort of throws in the towel on the whole thing. Throws in the towel on his faith. And if that's not enough, Paul reminds the strong person that the weaker brother is likewise one for whom Christ died. Do you want to be in that situation, Paul is saying? Do you dare want to be in that situation where you, by insisting on your liberty, destroy one for whom Christ gave up his liberty? And in fact, gave up his very life. Answer, we do not. So then, Paul says, verse 16, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. 
What you regard as good in the context here refers to your freedoms, your liberty, from the dietary laws, from any point of adiaphora. Our freedom on these things is good. It is a proper implication of our place in the new covenant. But Paul says, even though that is true, he says, don't turn what your more robust understanding of the work of Christ allows for, what you can regard as good, don't let that by your actions destroy another Christian brother. Don't let it weaken further an already weak in faith brother. That's what Paul says here. But when, we, when he says, we're not to stumble our brother. See, by the end of the little passage there, he has gotten to the point where he's saying, not just don't stumble them, but don't destroy them by your insistence on your freedom. Verses 17 through 19 now, Paul encourage us to, encourages us to rather focus on what really matters. He says, verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So here Paul really lays down a theological foundation for these warnings, these commands that he's giving. The idea of what is allowed and what is not allowed in regard to indifferent things, the freedom to eat and drink, are really not the point of the kingdom of God. And they must not be divided over. Remember last week we said that the the things that we must not divide over, we must not divide over. There are things that we must be willing to divide over. Those essential things, the gospel, the nature of God, and so on. But Christians, it seems, are so often so anxious to reduce Christianity to a set of external rules. The Old Testament Jews did it. The Pharisees excelled at it. And we tend towards it ourselves. To make the kingdom of God about externals. To major in minors to place importance on insignificant or at least lesser significant things, and what's worse, to neglect the things that are more important. Remember, Jesus came down hard on the Pharisees about that very thing. In Matthew 23, 23, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now, these are the same people, the Pharisees, who called John the Baptist demon-possessed because he abstained and called Jesus a drunkard because he didn't. And so Paul is reminding us here to focus on what really matters. And it's not concerns over what people eat or drink. It's not eating or drinking. It's interesting. Now, Paul brings in a third point of adiaphora, The idea of drinking, a point of much contention in the church today. 
But Paul says it's not those things. What really matters is not what you believe about alcohol. What really believe or what really matters in the church is not what you believe about the COVID vaccine or mandates. Paul says, here are the needful things. Not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The strong in Rome were saying that the weak were in need of loosening up. Chill. Enjoy the freedoms that we, the strong, enjoy. But the things that God seeks are righteousness, peace, and joy, all of which come through the Holy Spirit. And here Paul is probably speaking in this context about the Christian virtues, the spiritual fruit of righteousness, peace, and joy. Not so much the objective righteousness that that is the fruit of our justification that he talked about in the earlier chapters. But he's saying that you, Christians, should be concerned with seeking these things. With seeking righteousness and peace and joy among one another. Not getting distracted, not fighting, not dividing over something as stupid as what you eat or drink. Verse 18 says, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. That is, whoever focuses on these things, on righteousness and peace and joy, not worrying about, not dividing over those other things. Whoever focuses on these things is doing the right thing. Do you really want to be strong? Do you really want to be strong in your faith? Then focus on those things. Follow Christ by focusing on the truly important things. And in verse 19, he says that pretty much explicitly. He says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Seek this, you strong people in Rome, you strong people in Reading. Seek this, pursue this, follow after it with intensity of effort. These things of the kingdom, the things that make make for peace, the things that make for mutual upbringing. Seek those things primarily. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Put your energy, he says, not in tearing each other down, but in seeking to build them up. What makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. We're going to read in chapter 15, verse 2, that Paul will say, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. In Ephesians 4.29, Paul said, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up. In 1 Corinthians 14.12, he says, So with yourself, since you're eager for the manifestation of the Spirit, he says, strive to excel in building up the church. Now make no mistake, sometimes building up the church requires confrontation, requires Precision requires the courage to say this is right and this is wrong. But again, that's not in these kinds of things. These are in different things. And so next Paul returns to this topic of of what do we do? 
How do we live of our liberty and voluntarily limiting that liberty? He says, exercise limits on your liberty. That's our third point. Earlier he said, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. In verse 15, now in verse 20, he says, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Do not destroy for the sake of your liberty, for the sake of insisting on that liberty. Do not destroy the ongoing, sanctifying growth and grace that is the work of God in a weaker brother. Again, very similar to what he said earlier. He says that everything is indeed clean. Middle of verse 20. Every kind of food. But, he goes on, and here he says it again, it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Wrong to give them that reason uh, for that inward grief and pain. You know, it may be, it is acceptable, Paul says, to eat all foods. It is acceptable to drink alcohol. And the Bible everywhere condemns drunkenness, but nowhere condemns the use of alcohol. That's, that's true. But Paul says there's more to consider than just that. More than just the letter of the law. We have to consider as Christians seeking to see the church built up, seeking to see our brothers built up, we have to consider how our exercise of our liberty in their presence will affect them. It is wrong. It is contrary to love to cause someone to do something against his conscience. To encourage him to violate something that he sincerely holds and believes as wrong. Even if technically it isn't biblically wrong. And if that is the case, Paul says, then how does love act? Look at verse 21. He says, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. If it keeps a brother from sinning against his conscience, then what is indifferent, here the restraining from eating or drinking, is a good thing. It's a loving thing. The strong person, the strong Christian, should be ready and willing to rein in their own legitimate freedoms in regard to these things, if the exercise of those freedoms in the, the, the presence of others might result in harm to another weaker believer, is what he's saying. So much should we cherish unity and the upbuilding of the church, the upbuilding of our brother, that we will be willing to curtail our legitimate freedoms for their sake. Just as it is wrong to disregard your brother and make them stumble for the sake of your liberty, he says, so it is good to do the opposite. It is good to abstain in those situations. It is good to love our brothers and sisters in this sacrificial way. Paul teaches the the same principle as I mentioned over in 1 Corinthians 8 where he's talking in the context of food sacrificed to idols in Corinth. Now, there there are some interpretive difficulties in that chapter and and in chapters 8 and 10 more generally, but but Paul's important point is that, that they were saying that they had a right to do certain things because of their knowledge, because we know certain things. We know that there's no idols. But Paul strongly points out in that passage 
that their knowledge is not the only basis of Christian practice, but love is. Just like he said in 1 Corinthians 13, if I understand all mysteries and I have all knowledge, but I don't have love, what do I have? What am I? Nothing. But in the midst of his instruction to them, listen to how similar this is, he says this in 1 Corinthians 8.8. 8. He says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat. We are no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. There's Paul. And the point of all this is that we, beloved, must be willing to exercise limits on our liberty, our own valid freedoms for the sake of another, and to never do what would cause our brother to stumble. In verse 22 then, still addressing the strong, he says this. He says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Now remember, that sounds a little odd, but remember how Paul is using the word faith in this passage. We saw back in chapters 1 and 2 that he's not referring to saving faith in Christ, though it's intimately tied to that. But he's talking so much, when he uses the word faith here, not so much in what you believe in as what you believe that what you believe that the Bible is teaching. And that's true here as well. Paul is not saying, keep your faith to Christ to yourself. Never share it with anyone. And that's contrary to the message of the the New Testament, isn't it? That says that we should be sharing those things. But he's saying we, well, and also we are to instruct one another. Right? Iron sharpens iron. Proverbs 27, 17. Christian brothers and sisters encourage one another to grow in knowledge and wisdom and and especially godliness. But here, Paul is saying that the understanding that you have of liberty and freedom in regard to certain indifferent things doesn't have to be a predominant issue in your relationship with other Christians. Love, again, is to be the guide. We can keep our legitimate freedoms between ourselves and God. Our neighbor doesn't have to be convinced of them, doesn't have to agree with them, or does not certainly have to be persuaded to act in accord with my freedom, my liberty. And that brings us to the last point this morning where Paul calls us to recognize blessings and condemnations regarding liberty. At the end of verse 22, he gives a blessing. He said, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. That is, in the midst of of cautioning and warning these stronger in faith brothers regarding how they deal with their, their weaker brothers, Paul still says, it's good what you understand. He speaks well of the stronger one's understanding. He says, you're blessed because of your better, more mature understanding of these things, because your liberties are true in Christ, and therefore you have no reason to pass judgment on yourself for those things that you're able to approve. Now again, remember, these things need to be biblical. We can't just plug any old doctrine from the scripture into this and call it a freedom and consider ourselves blessed for it 
whatever we may think on it. The conscience of the Christian does not override the scripture. It doesn't override the moral law that God has established in his word. But where that conscience is biblically formed, biblically informed, it is better to have a strong conscience on these things. But then again in verse 23, he references the weaker Christian. He says in verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Let's stop there. That's strange. The strong is not condemned if he eats or drinks or celebrates certain days. But the weaker brother is. How does that figure? Well, it's because, still here in verse 23, because the eating, his eating, the weaker brother's eating, is not from faith. Here is a person who who believes that it's sinful to eat because of conscience. And if he believes that that is the case, because of his, his admittedly deficient, not yet matured understanding... But if he believes that and he, for whatever reason, including pressure from you, does it anyway, for him it is sin. You probably recall the the great Here I Stand speech given by Martin Luther on the floor of the, the Diet of Worms in 1521. At the end of that speech... You know, Luther said, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Paul says, it's sin. And here's the principle. If someone, for whatever reason, believes that something is a sin, eating meat, eating certain kinds of meat, drinking wine, wearing makeup, playing cards, wearing jewelry, whatever it may be, If he is convinced and his conscience bears him witness that doing such a thing is a sin, and then if that person goes ahead and does it anyway, he is purposefully, in his heart, going against what he believes God has said. And they are therefore, in their heart, in their will, being disobedient to God. And that's the definition of sin. And so it is, to use Luther's words, neither right nor safe for a person strong in his faith-grounded convictions to force or to entice a person who is weak to eat meat, to drink wine, to ignore a Sabbath day, or any of the other things. When a person is not yet convinced that their faith in Christ allows them to do so. And so in closing, the principle of love The command to love one another with a genuine, sincere love overrides even our own legitimate liberty. Let us bear with one another. Let us bear with one another's weaknesses as the Lord daily bears with ours. Well, we're not done. Paul has more to say about this topic, and we'll see it more next week. But for now, let us, who consider ourselves strong, let us determine, let us decide, back in verse 13, never to put a stumbling block in the way of a weaker brother. Let us rein in our liberty, even though we know we have it, in order to build up our brothers. And to that, let us say, Amen. Father, we thank you for...
the liberties that we have in Christ. We thank you that Christ has fulfilled the, the, the ceremonies of the Old Testament, that he has given to us a great freedom from those things by his fulfillment of them. But we pray, Father, that you would help us to seek the, the good of our brother. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen the, the understanding and the conscience of, of the weaker brothers and sisters, that they may understand and rejoice in what Christ has done and all of the implications of that. But, Lord, help us above all to not judge one another on these things. Let us not condemn one another on these things. Let us do what is necessary to show love, to seek the mutual upbuilding of our brothers and sisters. We know that is your will and that you have called us to it. We pray for your help and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.